0: Good morning, and let me ask you to open your Bibles to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. Today we're going to be looking at gospel preaching, the Apostle Paul style, which stylistically is a little different than Peter in places, but essentially the same message. Today our reading will be chapter 13, verses... 13 through 41 to give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Until Samuel the prophet then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years and when he had removed him he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? Or what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, and the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him. Everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray that because we've been here and we have sat under the ministry of the Word of God, that our hearts will have been changed into one degree of glory greater than it was all by your spirit and this we pray in the name of jesus christ amen you know i just read paul's sermon and i don't know how many minutes it took about six or seven minutes and everybody uh, probably is sitting here thinking well why don't you preach a seven or eight minute service and then we could get out of here let, let me assure you of something this is not paul's entire sermon this is luke's summary of paul's sermon I'm sure the sermon lasted much longer synagogue style as we see here. Paul's team had sailed north from Cyprus to the coast of Asia Minor with Perga in the region of Pamphylia as their first des- destination. We notice that Paul's emerging leadership is implied in the reference of the missionary team as Paul and his companions. Here John Mark abandoned the first missionary journey to return home. We do not know why John Mark, a cousin of Barnabas, left. That's open to speculation. Some people say he may have disagreed with the strategy. Other people say he didn't want to climb the mountains that they had to climb to get to Antioch-Pisidia, which is more inland, not coastal. Maybe he had dis- disagreed with the strategy. Rather than going to the coastal cities, why go into Asia Minor? Why cross over mountains? Because you know, a 12-mile hike in the mountains is not a straight line. If you drive 12 mile- miles across a mountain, it may take you an hour and a half. So it was a pretty rigorous journey. But anyway, he abandoned and uh, later on we're going to see Paul and uh, Barnabas argue about this and come to an impasse that, that his departure was unjustified, but perhaps Mark was intimidated by the leader's plan to make the dangerous trip over the Taurus Mountains to Pisidian Antioch in the interior. By the way, there are 16 Antiochs at this time. This is Antioch in Pisidia. It's a different Antioch than the Antioch we encountered before. I know it gets confusing. But why did Paul and Barnabas target and go inland to Antioch, Pisidia? Well, there's probably a very good reason. The extended family of Sergius, Paulus, was prominent. We heard about him last week, a Roman proconsul. And so His family was prominent in Pisidian Antioch and so possibly his offer of introduction influenced their decision. This Antioch had become a Roman colony and therefore wielded significant political and economic influence in the area. The Phrygian region of the Roman province of Galatia near the border with Pisidia. Another reason is a sizable Jewish community resided in Antioch as well consistent with Paul's priority of bringing the gospel first to the Jewish dispersion and then to the Gentiles. And so rabbinic sources show us that the reading of the Law of Moses and a related text from the prophets together with the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, the Shema, (laughs) <laughs> and then prescribed prayers typically open the synagogue worship then at the invitation of a presiding elder one uh, at a time served uh, an exposition of the scripture was given by a man in the congregation or a visiting rabbi and since Paul had served on the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem then he was recognized to speak but what I want to get into now is let's look at the nature of Paul's gospel presentation. What can we tell from this address about who the listeners are? Who is its intended audience? How does he make the case that Christianity is true? What does he say the heart of Christianity is? And how does he call upon them to respond? And so we have, as outlined in your bulletin, gospel credibility why is the gospel believable why is it reasonable gospel promises what does the gospel deliver and promise to those who believe finally gospel content what is the good news what is the heart of the message and finally gospel appropriation Uh, some people would call it conditions repentance and faith uh, in receiving Christ and so We have those four things that are obviously in Paul's message. Luke has provided in the book of Acts three summaries of Paul's gospel preaching, and they're all different. Here in Acts 13, we see him communicating to Jews and Gentile God-fearers. In Acts chapter 14, we will hear a message to non-educated pagans. And in Acts chapter 17, we read a digest of a sermon to philosophers and educated pagans. It is instructive to see the different ways that the capacities and beliefs of his audience shapes the way Paul both presents and argues for the gospel. We are called, as preachers of the gospel, to exegete the Bible, not to eisegete. Eisegete would mean to read into Scripture what I already think. Rather, we're to read out of Scripture what it says and explain the meaning. But Paul took it one step further. He took it uh, to the step further of explaining it taking his audience and exegeting his audience looking at their beliefs looking at their understanding uh what their pre-conversion status was and so paul's audience here was in a synagogue outside of judea and there were a combination of both jews and Gentile God-fearers, some who had been circumcised and were full converts to Judaism, and others, like Cornelius, who had adopted a monotheistic view and biblical morality in general, but had not yet been converted. So his audience is explicitly named in verse 16. But it is easily deduced by the very way that the gospel is presented and defended anyone in the synagogue would have respected the Jewish scriptures, the Bible, the Old Testament. This is particularly evident in verses 16 through 25, his opening argument. And so in verses 16 to 25, Paul makes his case for the truth of Christianity. And throughout, he assumes his audience already holds some trust in the Bible. So all the arguments that he uses in this sermon come from scripture. And so he refers to gospel witnesses. Uh, he, he begins a uh, journey through the redemptive history of Israel that begins in Egypt and closes with John the Baptist. And so there are two recognized authorities in this sermon. First, thus saith the Lord, the scriptures and John the Baptist, who is regarded as the greatest of the prophets. And to eyewitness evidence, uh, throughout verses 16 through 25, Paul makes his case for Christianity by stressing that God has always taken the initiative of grace in the history of his relationship with his people, which means this, you don't seek after God until God begins seeking for you. God always takes the initiative. Remember the fall in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned and God came to the garden where he had fellowship with them in the cool of the day and he had to call out to Adam, where are you? God seeking, seeking his fallen son, Adam, coming after him. And that's how God saves anybody. You may think from your side of the equation that one day you woke up and you said, you know, this God thing is really troubling me. I really want to know who God is. I really want to understand. I need to find out answers for my spiritual search. But what you are doing is the effect of a prior cause of God taking the initiative to come for you. And if that's going on to your life, God is at work. He is at work in you. Pay attention. He's doing something amazing. And so, God has always taken the initiative of grace in the history of his relationship with his people. He chose the Jewish patriarchs. He stayed with them, but only because he patiently endured with them in verse 18. There are two ways that can be translated due to a vowel in the Greek language. It could mean he put up with them, he endured with them because they were such a rebellious, stiff-necked people. Or it could mean by the change of one vowel we have in different manuscripts, it could mean he carried them gently like a lamb. I prefer the carried gently by the lamb because I like that picture. But the other thing I like about it is this whole sermon is so steeped in grace it makes more sense for Paul to say it that way. But both statements are true. He did endure with them. He did put up with that unbelieving generation. He stayed with them and endured with them and he gave them all their leaders and deliverers. And the first one was Moses. Not named but clearly alluded to in verse 17. Then came the judges, like Samuel, and Eli, and Gideon, and others, and the prophets, and kings, especially, Uh, Samuel, excuse me, wasn't a judge, he was a prophet. Uh, Especially David, the greatest deliverer of all. All through the summary, uh, uh, through this summary of Israel's history, he shows that God's favor has never been earned. You can't earn grace. that they they are mutually exclusive concepts you cannot obligate God to give you grace God's favor has never been earned but has always been given and that it has always been mediated through great leaders who saved the people by God's gracious power this is a complete denial that salvation can ever be by personal goodness uh, good morality Or serious religious profession. In other words, we never receive God's grace because we're decent, good, fun-loving, kind, neighborly, nice, and loving. Jesus didn't come to make us nice. Jesus came to make us new. Secondly, never by our, our morality, by keeping the standards up. By doing the best we can. By trying to be a righteous person with virtue. Never is grace given because of that. Or a religious person. That is devoted to the teachings and practice of a particular religion. When he gets to David, he immediately jumps to Jesus and points to him as David's son, the promised one. Verse 23, one that has been foretold. And then finally, he notes that John the Baptist accredited Jesus as the Messiah. In all of this, Paul is appealing to authorities that those who were listening to him respected. He uses these authorities to remind them that we need to be saved by grace through the great deliverers who God sends and then reminds them that the Bible has predicted ultimately and finally a great Savior who John the Baptist recognized as Jesus finally in verse 31 he refers to the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ as Peter did as well so Paul's case for the gospel in summary is this Jesus's life and death fits or fulfills the scripture prediction of the messiah the greatest prophet john the baptist recognized jesus as messiah thirdly we have evidence from the reality and truth of the bodily resurrection of christ it is important to see that the apostles never proclaimed the gospel by saying just believe because i told you to or just believe because it'll help you feel wonderful and better about yourself No, they made a reasonable argument for the truth of the gospel. The gospel is cogent. The gospel is reasonable. It is not irrational. It makes sense. It has its own logic. Listen to uh, um, Dave McGuire's Sunday school class on logic. He didn't know he influenced part of the sermon, but he did. Uh, A really good class that I heard the other day driving in the car, and I went, that's pretty compelling. I think I'll use it. So, that's how we see Paul's message. But let's look at the content of the gospel. Because in verses 26 to 37, Paul shows that Christianity is Christ. You take Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing. Christianity is Christ. The focus is not on his teaching alone, but rather on he himself, his person, his life, his death, his resurrection. Paul shares the death and the resurrection of Christ. Paul first shows that Jesus was sentenced for sins he did not commit. Though they found no grounds, they had him executed, verse 28. The reference to Jesus dying on a tree, and we've said this already, is a connection to the Old Testament truth that a tree was a place for a divine curse. When someone was considered a curse, they were hung on a tree as a demonstration of that curse thus when an innocent person or jesus was the innocent person suffering a curse for guilty people then he was buried but raised paul makes a case that the resurrection of david's descendant was predicted in psalm 2 isaiah 55 psalm 16 where david says that god will not let the holy one decay. How can that be? Since David did decay asked Paul and he reasons therefore that must have been in reference to the Messiah from the Davidic line not David himself because that Messiah was raised and never saw decay. So the heart of the gospel message is not that a teacher has come to show us How to save ourselves. Here's 12 steps for you. And if you complete these steps. Moderately well. Then you're in. No. That is not the gospel. It's not a teacher who has come to show us. How to save ourselves. But rather a savior who has come to die for us. And to be raised on our behalf. And so now he starts talking about the commitment to the gospel. He gives his hearers a choice. That is very characteristic of Paul's later writings, such as Romans and Galatians. He says that in Jesus we can receive forgiveness of sins, which is available for everyone who believes. Then he introduces his famous word, justification, and insists that through belief in the life and death of Jesus for us, we can be justified, that is, declared righteous, though unworthy of Eternal life. We have more than simple forgiveness. It means that we live with a status of approval and honor. It means to be considered simply righteous and blameless. When God looks at me because I have repented and believed in his son and am in union with me, he doesn't see me, the sinner, he sees me in his son Jesus Christ. Therefore I am holy and blessed. and that is my real identity. That is the real me. Everything else is a contradiction. That is the real me. And so he says that we are righteous as Jesus is because his righteousness is credited to us. He says that by obeying the law of Moses, we cannot be justified from our sins and made right with God. And he finally ends with a blunt statement that those who scoff at the great things that God has done in Christ will perish. That is the gospel. That is the Pauline taste and touch on the gospel. But I wanted to step a little bit further into it Because while we may all know those fundamental facts so far in our walk with Christ, perhaps, we're not that sharp about it. We're not really understanding the nature of the gospel and how deep it goes. And so in the opening page of your bulletin, there's a quote by John Newton in March 1767. The pastor and hymn writer and former slave owner, John Newton, wrote a letter to a friend, and the letter says this. Are you not amazed sometimes that you should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as you are, the Lord thinks of you. Think of that. The God of all creation, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, thinks of you. But let not... All you feel discourage you. For if our physician is almighty. Our dis- disease cannot be desperate. And if he casts none out that come to him. Why should you fear? Our sins are many. But his mercies are more. Our sins are great. But his righteousness is greater. We are weak. But he is power. Most of our complaints. Are owing to unbelief. And the remainder of a legal spirit. What I want to talk about. And this comes from. From uh, Dane Ortlund's book. Um, anybody know that book? Huh? Yeah, that's right. Except I can't hear you through your mask. <laughs> it's gent- gentle and lowly, right? Gentle and lowly. Uh, I want to. I want to quote from that book a little bit here and interact with the quotes. He says, "Now the way Newton speaks, the way that poor and needy as you are." The Lord thinks of you. And the fact, alluding to John chapter 6, where he cast none out that come to him, Newton is getting at something here that is significant. He is getting at Christ's heart toward us. Christ's heart toward us. And look at what he diagnoses as the bottom line source of our resistance to this assurance. That is a legal spirit a legal spirit or unbelief. And you know what unbelief in the Bible is? It's not not having faith. It's being independent and relying upon yourself. It is self-reliance. That's what biblical unbelief is. So this is an 18th century way that John Newton had of referring to works righteousness or legalism, the inveterate yet subtle proclivity to seek leverage, to seek to leverage Christ's favor with our behavior. Let me read that again. He's, he, it's an 18th century way of referring to works righteousness or legalism, the inveterate, yet subtle proclivity to seek to leverage Christ's favor with our behavior. That's a legal spirit. Newton helps us see that one reason we have a diminished awareness of the heart of Christ is that we're blindly operating out of a legal ex- experience. The gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone has both an objective side and a subjective side. The objective side is, in Christ, I am pronounced as fully forgiven and as righteous as Jesus is. Therefore, when I die, there will be no for me my judgment has already happened at the cross and I will be welcomed and ushered into heaven but there's a subjective side that means inside of me side and that's the side of my heart and that's the side of believing and living in the love of Christ for me he loved me he gave himself for me and nothing will quench that faster than a legal spirit and we all have one there's nobody in this room that doesn't have that we all have that you maybe you don't see it yet it's my job to convince you that you do and so Newton helps us see That one reason we have a diminished awareness of the heart of Christ toward us is that we are blindly operating out of a legal spirit. We don't see just how natural it is for us to operate out of works righteousness. That is, if God tells me to do ABC and I do it, then he owes me a blessing. But this kills our sense of Christ's heart for us because the legal spirit filters our sense of his heart according to how we are spiritually performing. Uh, Let's say that you're in a very cold climate. Can't imagine that here. But if you were in a very cold climate, I've been in Chicago when it was 22 below. That's as cold as I've ever been. Think of a vent in your bedroom that's connected to your furnace. And if you keep that vent closed on a cold winter day, the heat will be circulating throughout the ducts in your home, but you will not experience any of the warmth because you're closing it off. You've got your vent closed. Opening the vent floods your room with warmth. The heat that's always there, waiting to be accessed, is now available, but you weren't benefiting from it because you had the vent closed. That's what a legal spirit does that's what a works righteousness mindset does and where paul is preaching the gospel today is in south galatia and so he wrote the book of galatians to help us open up the vent of our hearts to feel and know the grace of the living god but isn't that love and grace pretty basic don't we christians know it already yes and no in galatians 3 10 paul says something striking and it's very easy to miss Our English text tells us that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The passage goes on to explain that this is because if we're trying to get justified according to our performance and how well we do, we have to perform perfectly, perpetually. One slip up, you're done. It's over. Somebody said one time, trying to live under the law is like a boat chained at the dock to a pier. How many, and there are 10 links in the chain, the 10 commandments, how many links gotta be broken before the boat goes astray? Just one. It can be the first one or the 10th one. We do all 10, by the way. And so, all who rely, all uh, failure torpedoes the whole project, and that's why we're so defensive is because of the legal spirit in our heart. That's why when someone confronts us or approaches us, it's very hard for us to own it, to say, yes, I was wrong, please forgive me. Those are the hardest words to say. Do you find them hard to say? I'm sure most of you in your marriage with your husband or wife, they come and say, I can't believe what you just did. And you humbly go, oh, I'm so wrong. I can't believe I did that. I, I don't know how you can live with me. Will you please forgive me for being, you know, such a loser? <laughs> Nobody says that, right? Immediately, we become a defense lawyer. Immediately, every fiber of our being resisted. Why? Because we have a legal spirit. It's in Everybody. So Paul says, what does he mean when he says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse? Well, literally, if you translated the text literally from the original language, it reads like this. As many as are of works of the law are under a curse. To rely on our works is a good rendering, but consider what it means to be of works. Paul uses the same phrase in Romans. Paul doesn't say that those who do the works are under a curse. He says those who are of works under the law are under a curse. Doubtless there is an overlap. Doing is included to some degree, but he speaks being of works. Paul is exposing who we most deeply are in our fallen condition. Not what you assent to doctrinally, but what are you of? To be of works is not to fall short. It's to march in the absolute wrong direction. It is a certain spirit, what Newton calls a legal spirit. As the gospel seeks in deeper and deeper over time, And we weigh deeper and deeper into the heart of Christ. One of the first outer shells of our old life that the gospel pierces is the doing of works unto approval. But there's another deeper level, an instinct or ofness level that must be deconstructed and shed as well. We can go through the whole day trumpeting the futility of doing works to please God, all the while saying the right things from an of works heart. Why do we have no sense of the love of Christ for us? Why does it not flood our being? Why does it not warm our hearts? Why are we so distracted? Why do we become so defensive? Why do we become so angry? Because we have an of works fallen nature. And it makes us nasty. And so what we need. Our natural of workness reflects not only a resistance to the doctrine of justification by faith. But also even more deeply a resistance to Christ's very heart. So here's my point. There's an entire psychological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant manufacturing of relational leveraging fear stuffing nervousness score keeping neurotic controlling anxiety festering silliness that is not something we say or even think so much as something we exhale you can smell it on people though some of us are good at hiding it. and if you trace this fountain of striving and scurrying haste and all its manifestations down to the root you don't find childhood difficulties or a myers-briggs diagnosis or freudian impulses you find gospel deficit you find lack of a felt awareness of christ's heart john owen used to say the greatest sin a christian can commit is to refuse to believe that christ loves you Like he says he does. And so the sweep of the New Testament. Is that the son of Christ's heart. Not the cloud of my sins. Now defines me. So. The felt. uh, All the worry. All the dysfunction. And resentment. Are the natural fruit. Of living in a mental universe. Of law. The felt love of Christ really is what brings rest and wholeness and flourishing and shalom and maturity and that existential calm uh, for brief gospel saying moments settles over you unless you step out into the storm of of workness. You see for a moment that in Christ you truly are invincible. The verdict really is in and nothing can touch you. He made you his own and will never cast you out. Living out of a law-fueled subconscious resistance to Christ's heart, which we all tend to think we're really successful at avoiding, is deep and subtle and pervasive, and I fight it every day. It is more pervasive than the occasional moments of self-conscious works righteousness would indicate. The moments of self-knowledge are indeed gifts of grace, and they're never to be ignored. But they are only the visible tip of an invisible iceberg. They are surface systems. Lawishness of worksness is by its very nature undetectable because it's so natural to us. Not unnatural to us. It's so intuitive, not counterintuitive. It feels normal. Of works to fallen people is what water is to a fish. You swim in it. But what does the gospel say? It puts the following words in each of our mouths. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. His heart for me could not sit still in heaven. Our sins darken our feelings of his gracious heart. But his heart cannot be diminished for his own people due to their sins any more than the sun's existence can be threatened by a passing of few wispy clouds or even an extended thunderstorm. The sun is shining, it cannot stop. Clouds, no clouds, sin, no sin. The tender heart of the Son of God is shining on me. That is an unflappable affection. And the sweep of the New Testament teaching is that in the Son, it is the Son of Christ's heart, not the cloud of my sins that now defines me. When we are united to Christ, Christ's punishment at the cross becomes my punishment. In other words, as I said earlier, the end time judgment that awaits all humans has for those in Christ already taken place. There's another judgment, I'm aware of that. But the judgment for salvation has already taken place. We who are in Christ no longer look to the future for judgment, but to the past. We look at the cross. We see our punishment happening, all our sins being punished in Jesus. The loved and restored you therefore trumps and outstrips, swallows up the unrestored you, not the other way around. And the Christian life, listen to this carefully, the Christian life is simply the process of bringing my sense of self, my identity with a capital I, the ego, my swirling internal world of fretful panickiness arriving out of the gospel deficit into alignment with this most fundamental truth. The gospel is the invitation to let the heart of Christ calm us into joy. The gospel, for we've already been discovered, already included, already brought in what can bring up our up and down moral performance into subjection to the settled fixedness of what Jesus feels about us. We are sinners, we sin, not just in the past, but in the present. And not only by our disobedience, but also by our of works obedience. We are perversely resistant to letting Christ love us. But as John Flavel, the Puritan, says, Why should you be such an enemy to your own peace? Why read over the evidences of God's love to your soul? Why do you study evasions and turn off those comforts which are due to you? In the gospel, we are free to receive the comforts that are due to us never turn them off open the vent of your heart to the love of christ who loved you and gave himself for you that's what's going to make heaven heaven the filters will be gone and we can truly bask in the love of jesus you think about that let us pray Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the gospel. It truly is the power of God unto salvation. And we pray that you would help us remove the filters to help us see the ways in which in our relationships and in our relationship with you and with others and with your world and your creation, that of workness, a legal spirit grows so quickly and hinders our ability to perceive and benefit from and bask in your love for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, we pray your blessed spirit would encourage us all with this word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.